Well, Father, thank you for your great grace and your mercy by which you save us. Thank you, Father, for the instruction from your words. Help us, your word, help us to receive it with open minds, with tender hearts, with a willing spirit to allow your word to speak to us and to change us, to overshadow us. Father, that we would walk in the truth, that we would live by faith and not by sight. Father, as we tackle and continue to study this uh, complicated and and, uh, um, interesting topic of sin from your word, Lord, give us a a growing understanding of the reality of what it is and how Jesus Christ brings victory over sin. Father, we commit ourselves now to your word, and I just pray that you will use it at this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There is, from Native American uh, legend, uh, from the Cherokee people group, a story that's called The Little Boy and the Rattlesnake. Perhaps you've heard it. Let me read it to you. The little boy was walking down a path and he came across a rattlesnake. The rattlesnake was getting old. He asked, Please, little boy, can you take me to the top of the mountain? I hope to see the sunset one last time before I die. The little boy answered, No, Mr. Rattlesnake. If I pick you up, you'll bite me and I'll die. The rattlesnake said, No, I promise I won't bite you. Just please take me up to the mountain. The little boy thought about it and finally picked up that rattlesnake and took it close to his chest and carried it to the top of the mountain. They sat there and watched the sunset together. It was so beautiful. Then after sunset, the rattlesnake turned to the little boy and asked, Can I go home now? I'm so tired and I am old. The little boy picked up the rattlesnake and because the evening was cool, took it close to his chest, held it warmly, tightly, safely. He came all the way down the mountain holding the snake carefully and took it to his home to give him some food and a place to sleep. The next day, the rattlesnake turned to the boy and asked, Please, little boy, will you take me back to my home now? It is time for me to leave this world and I would like to be at my home now. The little boy felt that he had been safe all this time and the snake had kept his word, so he would take it home as asked. He carefully picked up the snake, took it close to his chest, and carried him back to the woods, to his home, to die. And just before he laid the rattlesnake down, the rattlesnake turned and bit him in the chest. The little boy cried out and threw the snake upon the ground. Mr. Snake, why did you do that? Now I will surely die. The rattlesnake looked up at him and grinned. And he said, you knew what I was when you picked me up. We're talking about sin, and this morning, after a number of weeks of laying a theological foundation about sin from the Word, uh, understanding how sin entered the world, how sin has been imputed through Adam to us, to all people, how even all of creation groans under the weight of the curse of sin, and how only by the redemptive power of Jesus Christ is the curse of sin broken, how Satan, the prince of the power of the air, has taken many of the gifts that God has given us, and he has twisted them, and he has turned them. 
this morning I want to move from the theological to the practical. In fact, I want to be very practical and I want to talk about two individuals in our Bibles. The first is in Psalm chapter 74. And I invite you to turn in your Bible to Psalm chapter 74. Where the first person that we're going to talk about is a man named Asaph. And then later we're going to conclude our message time talking about another individual as an exhibit of the slippery slope of sin. His name is Samson, and that will be in the book of Judges. This matter of sin is a very interesting topic. I find in my reading of of the Word, and even as I study and as I read devotionally, uh, out of every page of Scripture comes teaching about sin. How the the great conflict of the ages is how Satan and sin are seeking to undermine God's plan and God's people and destroy and tear down and take God's gifts and turn them away. Interesting, isn't it? And this morning I want to speak to the point of this slippery slope of sin. How it is that even God's people, and you wouldn't think it would be this way, How people who are born again, people who've been to the cross, people who have recognized their sinfulness, people who have recognized that like the, like the proverb says that, that like a dog returns to his vomit, people who have been in a life of sin and it's been cyclical and, and you've gotten up and gone and sinned and you've come back and you say, why do I do that? And you've been to the cross and you've, you've broken out of that lifestyle. And you're a redeemed one. You're under the blood of Christ. You've been to the cross for the great exchange. The great exchange of the, of the holiness of Christ for your sinfulness. He's given you new life and you've been crucified with Christ. And as Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. You would think that someone within whom Christ lives, there would not be this draw, this lure to pick up rattlesnakes. You would think that it wouldn't be in us to want to look at sin and, and to feel in the residual of our flesh that is yet unredeemed until we get to heaven. The part of us that, though we're saved and we have victory over sin, yet there is this, as Apostle Paul said, this body of death. There is this desire. James talked about it and we've looked at that. That out of, the, out of our inner man, this lust, this desire for sin, and even after we know Jesus Christ is our Savior, the rattlesnake can look up at us and grin. And we'll pick it up. And put it close to our chest. I have a snapshot picture in my mind. Two of them. I've told these stories many times here. And to young people as I teach at camps and retreats. I remember being in high school in Vicksburg, Michigan. Southern Michigan. And I was in the marching band. And on a a Friday night after the marching band. And after the football game. And I had to go home and go to bed. Because I had to get up the next morning to milk cows. On the dairy farm for a man in our church. My dad was the pastor of our little Bible church and I loved the Lord and I wanted to live for the Lord and I remember going up to the band room to put my equipment away and and being part of the band as we shut down and at our high school the back of the band room had a hallway that opened through double doors and went out onto the stage in the theater area of our big gymnatorium. And there those doors were propped open and there was some teeny bopper band in there warming up and there was going to be a big dance that night. Well, I was in... A church and parents and 
As a Christian young people taught, you don't go to dances like that. There's not one good thing that's going to come of that. You're going to open the door to temptation at a place like that. There are things there that you don't want to be a part of, Van. And I can remember that night after I shut down and I looked over and I could hear the music and the kids were all going and they were having so much fun and and I walked out on and into the shadows of the backstage where all the big curtains were and I looked out and I have to tell you, I thought, how come the pagans are having all the fun? I don't know that it was the next morning, but it was a Saturday morning because I remember it was a, particularly fr- a particular Friday night where on the dairy farm where I milked cows, I had the milkers on. It was early in the morning, still dark out when the other guys came to work. At that point, when I worked on this dairy farm, we milked about 100 cows in a milking parlor. I was 16 years old. I was trying to live for the Lord. My dad was the pastor of the little Bible church and I wanted to live for the Lord and I wanted a testimony for Christ. Had a little Bible church. My mom was my youth director and there was maybe a seventh grade girl when I was 16 that was there in the youth group, two or three kids in this little Bible church in semi-rural small town Michigan and my dad made me play my trumpet on Sunday nights and I was in... Had the milkers on. I thought you were supposed to be to work on time. The other guys that worked on the farm, they were, they were a great group of guys. They were basically just um, pot-smoking hippies. They didn't know the Lord. We used to talk about the Lord. I was concerned about their souls, and I would share Christ with them. And I remember on this particular morning, early in the morning, and it wasn't even daylight yet, and the milkers were on, and they came in, and they were a little bit extra late because the night before they had entered into some... Some sin that was very attractive. And they had stayed up late into the night with their sin. And I can remember with my head pushed against the side, the belly of that cow holding down on the milker with my face behind her leg, thinking to myself, Whoa, those guys are having a lot of fun. Do you know that feeling? Do you know that... That, that little voice on the inside that speaks sometimes that says, go ahead, pick it up. It's a rattlesnake, but it, it's really nice. You're missing out on all the good times. I thought that I was the only one that felt that way. I didn't realize that several thousand years before that in the Bible there was a guy who had that exact same feeling. I suspect that many of you have had that feeling. You know what it is to want to live for Christ. You know what it is to be to the cross, to be born again. And you know your Bible. You know that 1 John chapter 2, verses 15, 16, and 17 say, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The things that are in the world are made up of the lust of the, the, lust of the eye and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life appealing to us in a way that will take us down a slippery slope. The Apostle Paul warned us in Galatians chapter 5, where he gives two lists, and he says there in Galatians 5, he says, walk according to the Spirit so that you do not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then he goes on with a grocery list of all the things that are identified with the lust of the flesh. And it has a lot to do with everything around the world in which we see, the things of which movies are made, and the things that make headlines, and the the things that people talk about at the office that they've been doing. And you know you want to live for Christ, and you, you know you want to be the man or the woman or the young person God wants you to be, and... And yet, 
truth be known, deep inside, once in a while, the rattlesnake smiles. And you say, man, that, that could be really good. Well, Asaph is our man, the first part of our story. It's Psalm 73. I might have said 74. It's Psalm 73. His name is Asaph, and you need to know that he's essentially a minister of music in the temple of God. His full-time job, his, his adult life capacity was given to the worship of God. He was a songwriter, he was a song director, he was a worship leader, he was a poet. He knew the Word of God, he listened for the voice of God, and he directed the people of God in their worship. And one day, we don't know the circumstances, we don't know what was prodding him, we don't know exactly what was working on him, but he sat down and he wrote a song, and it's recorded for us in Psalm 73, we have the words, not the music, and he writes a very interesting open testimony to the congregation. In an unexpected level of transparency with a surprising reality, Asaph admits to some things that you would think a man of God should not speak. Let's read what he says. This is a psalm of Asaph, Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. I don't know if he's a little bit facetious when he writes that, or tongue-in-cheek, or if it is a foundation that he says almost with a sigh. I know that God is good to Israel. I know that God rewards His people. I know that in my brain. I know that that's true. But, look at verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph begins, number one, with a disturbing revelation. A disturbing revelation. He opens up his heart to us and he admits to something that's going on deep in the core of his being that catches us by surprise. He says, and we don't know if he was looking at his neighbor, if he had been in the backyard looking across the fence, and his neighbor's garage door came open and he thought to himself, Why is my neighbor have all the goods? What's going on here? And he says, my feet almost slipped. I almost stepped out onto the slippery slope, like being on a roof on a frosty morning when you can't keep your feet. And the bottom's going to go out from under you. And he says, I looked around and I saw that the wicked were very prosperous. He says in verse 3, I was envious. So we know that this is something that went on in the core of his being. It went on in the secret place of his heart. It was an envy. It was something that he mauled over. It was something that pictures went through his mind. Something that in his being he dwelt upon. And he felt a pull. The word envy there. He felt this pull, this, this inner desire to participate. To be that instead of this. He said, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. That's his disturbing revelation. I want you to see that he bases this number two on a distorted observation. It's a distorted observation. Look what he says. He said, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. That's a compliment. In his culture, that's a compliment. You had plenty of food. You took life easy. You were rich and wealthy. It's a little bit that way in Africa. 
When we go to Malawi, the bigger and heavier the guys that are with us, they know that those are the guys who are in charge. The big overweight guys that are with us, they think they're in charge. Because the heavier you are, the more you've had to eat. The more you have people waiting on you, you don't have to work. And these guys' eyes bulge and their cheeks are round and their bodies are big and fat and sleek. And notice, they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. They wear their pride like a necklace. They're cocky. They're arrogant. Their muscles bulge. Everything about them is good looking. They're everything I want to be and I'm not. But I want you to see as we read on that this is in many ways a distorted observation. It's like when we go to the movies. And you sit down and you enjoy this story on the big screen and the surround sound and you're into it and you enjoy the story and it might be about cars that can jump bridges or other things that you don't want to mention and I've had people in my office dealing with issues in their marriage based upon wanting their spouse to be what they saw in the movies. It's make-believe, my friend. You can't do with a car or a train or a spaceship what they just did. It's all make-believe, and you can't do what they did, and they're doing it in a studio. They're really not in outer space. And she really doesn't want him like that. That's make-believe, it's pretend, it's fantasy. And it all is designed to hiss and to rattle and to appeal to that inner person that says, Oh, I could get into that. It's a, it's a total distortion of reality. The wicked get sick. The wicked are not all fat and healthy and wealthy. The wicked are a mess. I've been in their homes after they've busted them up in their drunken sprees. I've helped take them to the emergency room. I've talked to them after they've stumbled down the stairs and broken out their front teeth on a cement platter in their drunkenness. That's not fun. And Asaph is just, he's having trouble with his orientation here. It's all distorted. His reality is spinning. And for some reason, he thinks that his neighbor's bass boat and his neighbor's wife and his neighbor's lawnmower and even the lack of weeds in his neighbor's yard means that somehow God is blessing him and he's missing out on the good life. So what's up with me, God? I know that God is good to Israel, but... I'm about to step out on the slippery slope. I'm about to pick up the rattlesnake. Their eyes swell out through fatness, verse 7. They scoff and speak with malice. They look at verse 10 and 11. They say, how can God know? They don't even care what God knows. God doesn't know. God, God's not in charge. I'm in charge. They're big. They're strong. They live forever. It's a total distortion. I remember when Janet and I went to my 10th year high school class reunion. I've referenced this before. 10 year high school class reunion seemed like we were pretty old. We were 27, 28. Out of high school, 10 years. That's a long time. I was a youth pastor already in Martinsburg. Had been in effort of Pennsylvania for a few years. We show up at our 10-year class reunion at some restaurant in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and I hadn't seen these kids for 10 years. And, and I realized that Asaph, Asaph's wrong. Sin doesn't make you look better. I was stunned. I was stunned. 
the cool dude that always wore the wife beater shoot shirts that played the drums in our pep band at basketball games and, and he was cool and would, would stand up and wave his sticks and everybody in the whole gym would cheer and he was muscled up and very, very cool and everybody thought he was really something. He was sitting at a table by himself about 75 pounds overweight with his head down. I was like, who's that guy? Oh, that's Brad Miller. That's Brad Miller? He used to be the coolest guy in school. He could run across the gym and do hand flips all the way. Went over and said hi to Brad. What's going on, Brad? Oh, man, I'm doing fine, man. What's going on? Yeah, I'm on my third marriage. Yeah, I'm 75 pounds overweight. I'm not cool anymore. He didn't say that, but his whole persona reeked of it. And I began to understand something. I talked to one of my buddies that I milked cows with on that dairy farm. His life was all messed up. What's going on, Tim? Oh, you don't even want to know, man. It's been 10 years. Can you believe, man? Tell stories about on the dairy farm. And that night going home, I began to understand maybe for the first time in my life something that my dad used to talk about and pray about. He used to, he used to thank God in family prayer for how the gospel blessed our family. Thank you for what you've given us through the gospel. And I used to think when I was a kid, how does the gospel do anything for us? I asked Jesus into my heart. That's the gospel. No, you know, the gospel is why we pay our bills on time. The gospel was the reason I thought you were supposed to be to work on time. The gospel is why I didn't get on the slippery slope. The gospel is why we didn't pick up rattlesnakes. The gospel is what made us everything we are. And my dad used to say, he said, everything I am, I am because of the gospel. Wow. Asaph's not right here. It's a distorted observation. In fact, he even takes it a step further in verse 12. And look what he says. He says, behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase riches. It's not true. They're bankrupt half the time. All in vain, he says, verse 13. All in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. He said, I have lived a pure life. I have separated myself from sin. And it's all in vain, number three. It's, he even touches on the discounting of his salvation. The discounting of his salvation. Salvation is cheap. It's keeping me from the good stuff. It's like a doubting that's going on in his heart. I, I have this salvation from God, but I wonder if it's just kept me from the good life. Look at these guys. Their eyes are bulging out of their heads. Asaph, with his disturbing revelation, his distorted observation, this discounting of his salvation, ends up getting his feet back on the ground when he goes to church. I guess he decided he better get up and go to work, because later on it says, verse 18, Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. He says before that, verse 16, he said, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. I wasn't sure I could do it until, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. In the sanctuary of God is where he understood a lot of things. It's where he understood that a loving God keeps us from a distorted worldview. 
where the plan of God works. Remember what our definition of sin is? Sin is anything that we do contrary to the will and word of God. Anything that we do contrary to the will and word of God. Remember that it's, it's missing the mark. It is stepping outside of the plan of God. That's sin. And when you go to the sanctuary of God, you remember that it's inside the will of God that that is where the blessing comes. It is there that you understand reality. It is there that you understand that rattlesnakes are not good pets. It is there that you understand that this is not my town. I have another city. I am an alien and a stranger and I'm just passing through. And it is there that we can put together and recognize a timeline of my life. And like Alonzo Puller, I can talk about one night at 2.30 in the morning after a full evening of sin. Overwhelmed with a guilt that I had no idea from whence it comes. The Spirit of God put in my mind, you need Jesus. Where do I find Jesus? I remember my mama used to kneel down at her bed. I wonder how often she was praying for Lonzo, Carlo. Praying the prayers of a mother. 20 years later, 30 years later, through the Spirit of God, the blinders come off. And he gets on his knees and he cries out to God. And the Word of God is fulfilled. If you seek me, you'll find me. I don't think he said it in the second service. In the first service, when Lonnie shared his testimony, he said at his bedside when he cried out to God, he turned his life over to God. But he said, I really think I got saved at the traffic light. I think I really was regenerated. I understood and I, I opened my life to Jesus at the traffic light. That's where God saved me. Interesting, isn't it? And so finally, Asaph gives a discerning affirmation to his faith. A discerning affirmation. He says, when I went to the house of the Lord, verse 17, to the sanctuary of God, the dwelling place of God, that is where I had discernment, and they are the ones who are on the slippery road. They're the ones who are picking up the rattlesnakes. He says in verse 26, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you, but for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. And he renews his mind, he renews his heart. You would think that God's people wouldn't have to be told to not pick up rattlesnakes. You would think that God's people wouldn't have to be told to flee from sin like Paul did Timothy. You would think that God's people wouldn't have to be told to put on the full armor of God that we can stand against the schemes and the wiles of the devil. But we do because it's a slippery slope. Because sin is not compartmentalized. Sin is insidious. Sin is everywhere. Sin is creeping at your door like a rattlesnake, crouching there, waiting to devour you. Listen, there's never a time in your life where you can stop worrying about sin. We always think that if I just pray, and I, I know I know Jesus as my Savior, I'm praying, I'm journaling, I'm accountable, I'm in Bible study... All very good, all very wise. And I do this, then next Thursday, everything's going to be great. And next Thursday, sin is crouching at your door waiting to eat you for lunch. 
And Satan, like a roaring lion, is waiting to devour you. Can never let down your guard. Because our hearts are deceitful. Our hearts are desperately wicked at the core, apart from the redemptive power of Jesus Christ to give us a new heart, a new set of goals, a new set of standards. So I'd like to conclude the message talking about our second guy, our first guy, Asaph. A lesson for all of us on the vulnerability of, of, our, of our secret places of our hearts, longing for things that God says are off limits, longing for things that it appears seems so delicious. And yet, they have the sting of death. Now to Judges chapter 13. This won't take long to wrap up. You know the story well of Samson. You recall that the book of Judges is, is about the history of Israel following the rule of Moses and then Joshua and Caleb. And that after the generations that lived when Joshua was ruler, they entered into this cyclical time, this time of cycle where everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. It's very much like how we live in America today. Israel of old at this time had a foundation of godliness like America, a foundation of godliness. But then there was this release, there was this new generation, multiple generations that came along and their fathers didn't shut them down. Their fathers let them run in the streets and everyone did that which is right in their own eyes. And so then God gave them over to a justice that they deserved. And sin overwhelmed them. And society collapses. And then the people in their brokenness, even in, even, in, uh, even in famine, in times of economic brokenness because of their sinful lack of discipline, then they would cry out to God and then God would raise up a leader. The people would repent. God's blessing would pour out. They would enter then a season, sometimes of 30 or 40 years, of God's blessing. And then everyone would begin to do what is right in their own eyes again. And then they would spiral down and until they were so broken, they would cry out to God and say, Oh, bless us like old, and they would repent. And then God, and, and the book of Judges is this cycle. And in this part of the cycle, in, in chapter 13 and 14, we have an interesting account of another miraculous birth in the Bible. There are numerous miraculous births of special people. Often it seems when God was going to do something special with someone, He gave them an unusual birth. And in this chapter 13, I want you to look at verse 2, chapter 13 of 2 of Judges. At this point in the history of Israel, they are dominated by a wicked people group called the Philistines. The most famous of the Philistines was Goliath. David killed him. There was a certain man of Zorah, verse 2, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And so, this man and woman, barren, wanting a child, 
God comes and speaks to him in the form of an angel, tells him they're going to have a child, and he says something unusual to him that you need to understand. This concept of a Nazarite vow. Nazarite, this, the concept in the word itself and the definition of the word means to be separated from and dedicated to. To be separated from and dedicated to. That's a Nazarite. And so there was a practice, and this was taught in the Old Testament in the Pentateuch. The idea was that you could enter voluntarily into these seasons of special spiritual commitment. And you would take what's called a Nazarite vow. Even in the New Testament era, the Apostle Paul would do this on occasion. And one of the ways that you did it was this threefold marking. Don't cut your hair or shave. Don't eat any fruit of the vine, lest anything fermented would cross your lips. And number three, don't touch anything unclean, particularly dead bodies. It was an external sign to show that something was going on internally. It was external behavior to remind you of an internal commitment. Separated from, committed to. And that's right. What was interesting about this is that Samson was to be a Nazarite from birth, even from conception. That's why he tells her, don't drink any wine or touch anything unclean while you're pregnant. I'm separating this baby out unto myself. This is a child of promise. This is a child of purpose. This is a child who is called by God to lead Israel back to righteousness. He had everything going for him. He just had this strange upbringing. His dad made him go to church, not cut his hair, play the trumpet during the offertory, not drink wine, can't go to dances. You're separate. You're different. You don't pick up rattlesnakes. And so there's Samson. And now we're in chapter 14, and now he's an adult, and we have to go rapidly through this, but you'll follow it because I think most people know the story so well. It says, chapter 14, verse 1, that Samson went down to Timnah. Timnah was a Philistine village. And in Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And then he came up and he told his father and his mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. He's a little bit bodacious. But his father and his mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and his mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Let's stop and comment on two things that are of interest. One is this matter of picking up a bride at a family reunion that you see there in uh, verse 3. And when his father and mother confront him and they say, can't you find someone among our relatives that would make a suitable bride? The whole point is that God had specifically given a list of seven nations and he said, don't even think about marrying those people. Now, granted, the Philistines were not on that list, but the Philistines were pagan. And God clearly gave an overriding principle and the parents in Israel were very concerned that their children not cross the borders and marry into the pagans. We have example after example that as God sought to preserve his people, that when they intermarried with pagans, they began to worship false gods. They began to live in ways that was not pleasing to God. 
So it's very interesting, and so it was very appropriate, and, and the Israelites all come from, from 12 tribes, made up of 12 brothers, and so really they were all cousins, and that's the point. You could marry within the tribe or outside of the tribe. In, in Israel, you're marrying a relative. It was a wholesome and good thing, not a weird, you know, backwoods thing. And then in verse 4 it says, Verse 4 is a really puzzling verse. It says, "Father, His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. That's a difficult verse to discern. Exactly what does he mean? Was he disobedient to his parents? Did he go and lust after a Philistine girl? He ends up in this horrible situation where he ends up murdering 30 guys to get 30 suits of clothes to pay off this bet that he lost or this riddle that he throws out at his wedding feast. He never does get to marry the girl. The whole thing is disastrous. Yes, out of it, a bunch of Philistines were killed. In the Hebrew mind, as the Hebrew writer would write this, the idea was that even God was sovereign even over this behavior and that God had in Samson that whatever he did, he was taking out Philistines. I doubt, I doubt that, that Samson went and wanted to marry this girl among the Philistines so he could kill Philistines. He had nothing but girl on his brain, I think. It's pretty clear later in his life. So that's an interesting verse. That's all I'm going to comment about it. It is difficult to discern. What I do want to present, though, is is that here is a young man with the promise of God upon him. He's set apart with the Nazarite vow. And at this point in his young adult life, and you young adults here need to listen, you young people, he steps out of the upstairs window onto the roof, onto the slippery slope, and he thinks, I'm not going to fall. I can handle this. I'm the man. And I want to show you five indicators from Samson right here. Very quickly as we conclude, I want to show you five indicators that you might be on the slippery slope. The first one is that he delighted in the forbidden. He delighted in the forbidden. We have multiple examples in this passage and we'll not be able to read the whole thing. But the very first thing he did is he went and he looked in a forbidden neighborhood for a girlfriend. She was off limits. She wasn't really who God wanted for him. His mom and his dad speak to him and say, wait a minute, she doesn't meet the criteria that God has laid out for our people. And so the first thing he did was he he delighted in the forbidden. You'll see also uh, when he goes on, look at verse 5, let's read a little more. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. There were evidently these big orchards and vineyards around the town. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. You know, in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God came upon and left these people. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. I've never done that, but evidently he could. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Notice that. He didn't tell his father and mother what he had done. Why? He didn't want to tell them he had touched a dead animal after he made it dead. Then he had to go through the purification process. All that stuff's a bother. All that stuff my mom and dad have me doing all my life. What a pain. And he... He delighted in the things that were forbidden all of his life. Don't you think Samson had been looking out, looking out the window, looking at the next neighborhood, looking over at the next people group saying, I wish I could be with them. 
Look how beautiful their daughters are. Samson, it says, then he went down and he talked with the woman, verse 7, and she, again, uses this phrase in the ESV, and she was right in Samson's eyes. He liked the way she looked. After some days, he returned to take her, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands, and he went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and his mother, and he gave some some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Second time in the short passage, he doesn't tell his parents something. It's because he delights in the things that are forbidden and he knows that his mom and dad will correct him and confront him. Young people, listen. You find in your heart that you're delighting in the things that your parents have taught you to leave alone. You're probably on the slippery slope. Well, go back to verse 3 when he first went down and identified this daughter of the Philistine that he wanted to marry as a wife. He comes and he speaks harshly to his father, evidently, certainly bluntly, And he says, now get her for me as my wife, verse 2, verse 3. But his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives and so forth? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. The second thing that you know you're on the slippery slope is when you disregard godly counsel. When you disregard godly counsel. His mother and his father, it said, spoke to him and he blew it off. He disregarded it. Listen, I don't care what age you are. Even if you're old and gray, if you are disregarding godly counsel in your life, it is very likely that you are on the slippery slope. The third thing I want you to see is that he dishonored his father and his mother. Not only did he disregard their counsel, but he dishonored them because for the second time, it says, go get her for me. And then he says, get her for me at the end of verse 3, second time already. Get her for me, for she's right in my eyes. In other words, I don't care what you think. I don't care what you see. I don't care what you say. I think she looks great. The third thing he did was dishonor his father and his mother. This young man is well on his way to being bit by the rattlesnake. The fourth thing I want you to see that if you're on the slippery slope is what Samson did when he went back to the dead animal that he had killed, the wild animal that he killed, the lion. It had been enough time that evidently the body had decomposed enough that wild bees had made a hive there and they had been there long enough to be able to generate honey He goes and checks it out. He's, oh, this is where I killed that lion. He walks over into the orchard where he tore up the lion. He's not supposed to mess with dead animals. So then he sees these bees humming out of the carcass and maybe the skin is all shrunken and and the guts are all gone from the buzzards or whatever. And he he sees bees swarming around and Samson must have been something. I mean, like you don't reach in there and grab a bunch of honey. I don't care. Some kind of black bear in there. He's touching a dead animal. And so what you see is that he personally disobeyed direct commands. All of his life he had been taught, don't cut your hair. Don't drink fermented. Don't touch anything unclean and dead animals. Those are direct commands from God, from the angel of the Lord. And his mother and father had ingrained that in him from his youth. And the fourth reason we know he was on the slippery slope is because of how flippant he was with serious matters. I can handle it. 
He disobeyed direct commands and touched the dead body. I want you to see in all of this then, number five, you know you're on a slippery slope when your conscience stops working. It is interesting, by the way, this whole concept of how he said, I like that woman. He ends up never even getting to marry her. She spends the whole first week of the wedding feast crying and wailing and wearying him until finally he gets upset, gives her the answer to the riddle. You'll have to read the story. What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? He then has to provide the clothes for all the Philistine young men who got the girl to give them the answer. Remember, that's the classic line where he tells them, you plowed with my heifer. That's probably not a good line to use, men, ever. <laughs> notice, uh, notice verse 19. This is how his marriage week ends. One week into his marriage, in hot anger, he went back to his father's house without his bride. I guess his father's house wasn't so bad after all. And Samson's wife was given to his companion, the best man. Turn the page and look at chapter 16, verse 1. Samson, a number of years later, evidently says this. This is 20 years later, probably. Samson went to Gaza and there he saw a prostitute. He started out going to Philistia and looking at a woman. And then he goes to Gaza. Listen, the behaviors that Samson established when he was a young man on the slippery slope are the same behaviors that destroyed his life in his old age. Just stop and think for me with a minute when you think about the story. He lost his relationship with his parents. He lost his marriage. He lost his integrity. He lost his spiritual potential to lead the nation. He lost his eyes and he ultimately lost his life all because he picked up rattlesnakes. He thought he could handle it. That's a slippery slope, my friend. That's what sin does. That's what sin can do to God's people. Not to just sin and pagans who don't care about God. He delighted in the forbidden. He disregarded godly counsel. He dishonored his father. He disobeyed direct commands. The fifth one is that he dulled his conscience. He dulled his conscience. Let me end with this story. It's from Dr. John MacArthur's book, The Vanishing Conscience. In 1984, in Avianca Airlines, that's from Colombia, in Avianca Airlines in 1984, a jet crashed in Spain. Investigators studying the accident made an eerie discovery. The black box cockpit recorders revealed that several minutes before impact, a shrill, computer-synthesized voice from the plane's automatic warning system told the crew repeatedly in English, pull up, pull up. The pilot, evidently thinking the system was malfunctioning, snapped, shut up, gringo, and switched the system off with the override. Minutes later, the plane plowed into the side of a mountain. Everyone on board died. That's what happens when you're on the slippery slope. When you're on the slippery slope, your conscience, like Samson, surely early in his life, when he first snapped at his father, when he first looked at the Philistine girl, surely the little voice inside told him, don't do it, don't do it, shut up. Don't do it, don't, shut up. Don't do it, don't do it, shut up. 
and the conscience is seared. Listen, you know you're on the slippery slope when you have dulled your conscience. There's Asaph with his transparent testimony. I have to tell you that when I sit on my front porch at night and I look across the street, I think, wow. That's Asaph. There's Samson, a demonstration of what happens on the slippery slope. This is how it works. This is how you know you're on the slippery slope. Well, we must stop. We have more to talk about, more of the effects of sin. More on how do we ultimately overcome and live victoriously over sin. Will you bow your head for just a moment, please? I wonder if you've been messing with rattlesnakes lately. I wonder if they have a big grin and they don't even rattle right now. And maybe you're even holding them close to your chest. Listen, it's going to bite. I wonder who's on the slippery slope this morning. And they need to get off and they need to come back to Jesus. Sin is going to ruin you, my friend. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has already done everything for you in Christ to give you the victory over sin. It just doesn't feel like it right now. But you can say no. Paul said clearly in Titus chapter 2, he said, For the grace of God that brings salvation. That's that amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The grace of God that brings salvation, that same grace is what teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly pleasure and to live self-controlled, upright lives in this present age. I'm thinking there's some people that need to, need to kill some snakes and they need to stop sitting on the front porch at night looking over at the neighbor for whatever reason. And you need to come back to the sanctuary of God. And you need to renew your perspective on what God has done for you in Christ and restore and renew the joy of your salvation and enter in. I beg of you and I challenge you to take care of business with God right now before you fall off the roof. The slippery slope will get you. And so, Father, renew our minds. Open our eyes to truth. Give us tender hearts. Please challenge our young people. Challenge our old people. Help us in the battle with sin. Help us to overcome the flesh as we are commanded. To care about righteousness. To care about self-control to be concerned about a coming judgment. Father, bring us out of our our nighttime of bondage and help us to enter in anew and afresh with Jesus. That's our prayer. Amen.